Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff. I'm here today with my co-host, Bethany Ruff. Hello, hello. Welcome to the show. And we have an amazing guest to introduce to you today. Nina Teichels is an investigative science journalist, professor adjunct, and executive director of the Nutrition Coalition. In 2014, she became a New York Times bestselling author of The Big Fat Surprise, an incredible work of journalism that took a decade to research and write. The book was named a 2014 best book by The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and several other media outlets. Her writing has been published by the BMJ, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and The Los Angeles Times, among others. Nina attended Yale and Stanford, where she studied biology and majored in American studies. She also has a master's degree from Oxford University. As the executive director of the Nutrition Coalition, Nina has emerged as a thought leader in the field of evidence-based nutrition policy. She currently lives in New York City with her husband and two sons. As we have been hosting this podcast, I have gotten the opportunity to thank people who, um, God, I'm getting a little emotional. <laughs> I've gotten the opportunity to thank people who have made a difference in my life. And I've, I've, I, <laughs> this is such a cool opportunity for me to thank you, Nina, for everything that you've done and how you've impacted us and our clients. Your work is amazing. Welcome to the show. <laughs> That's an amazing introduction. <laughs> Thank you so much, Casey. I mean, I'm honored to be here. And I, it's it's like such an incredible honor to 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 feel like I've had an impact like but like that. So you are you are very welcome. The people that know us know you. <laughs> we have talked about you. We have shared your work. They recognize your book. I, I just I can't thank you enough. So thank you very much for everything that you've done. Thank you. I'm really happy to be talking to you and your audience. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We know they're going to get a lot out of this. Do you ever get sick of telling the story that you're about to tell? I'm actually still so interested in the science and in this um, this area of nutrition that uh, sometimes I think I should be getting bored of it, but I don't. I mean, and it's still evolving in such rapid ways that uh, that it's it's kind of never a dull moment to be to be interested in nutrition. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, <laughs> we've used this quote several times, but on a Peter Atia podcast, he said, you know, the further from the shore you swim, the deeper the water gets. It's just an endless amount of learning that you can do when you get into this field. Your book is about Oreos and aldehydes and <laughs> science and pseudoscience and all kinds of crazy crazy things. It's not a nutrition book. This is like a thriller. It's like a murder mystery. You don't even have to be interested in nutrition to like find this book absolutely gripping. What a crazy story. Well, it, um, thank you for that. And uh, the economist called it a nutrition thriller, which seems kind of like that's an oxymoron. How can nutrition be thrilling? But in fact, it's because the politics of nutrition are, to me, are so overwhelmingly um, stunning. Like it is, it's really not about science. I mean, it is about science and all, but it's also about all the science that has been suppressed and how that science was suppressed and by whom and all the tactics that they used and sort of the battles that went on between scientists and still go on today. So it's, it's totally fascinating that this world that we think is such a 
a, a sober, rigorous place where we're um, unfolding our knowledge the way that we learn in science class when we're young um, is actually nothing like that. It's 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 actually people trying to beat each other up and 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 not publish findings that are are <laughs> that go against sort of the medical nutritional dogma. I mean, it really is. I, I still can't believe that's why I didn't give up, you know, in all the nearly a decade that I spent researching this book, because there were so many surprises. Every time you looked at a paper, it was like its own little mystery book, which is, is the, is this paper going to report its actual findings? How are the authors going to deny their findings because they can't risk losing more funding. I mean, there's just so many mysteries in all these papers. And so it's, it is endlessly interesting. So crazy. I, you know, I've heard you on many, many, many different platforms, but I don't know that I've ever heard you tell the story of what it was like to write that book. What were those 10 years like? I mean, you just, you just said it was, you know, one study would be this rabbit hole. Like what, what was your day to day writing this book? Well, um, <laughs> It's hard to categorize a, a full, let's say it was, so it was really, it was nine years that I spent and uh, I wasted, let's say I wasted a lot of time going down rabbit holes. For instance, there's an entire unpublished chapter that I could still publish that is on omega-6s and omega-3s um, that in the end, my editor thought, well, this is kind of off topic and we don't, I don't think this really goes in the book. Um, but that, that probably took like an entire year of my life. And then I spent another, I wrote maybe another chapter just on margarine that we decided was also, uh, should not go into the book, but it was completely fascinating about all the margarine wars that took place in this country and the housewives that took to the street in protest, demanding that they have access to buy, be able to buy margarine in the thirties and forties, wow. 1930s and 40s. Wow. So there were, I also, um, my original publisher dropped me. And so there was a while that I had no publisher. And then my, the original editor was fired from that publisher. And then she went on to another publishing house, Simon and Schuster and purchased my book there. And then she was fired from Simon and Schuster. So another editor took it over. Wow. I mean, I think a lot of writers have stories like this of books that are you know nearly orphaned or don't make it to see the light or people think it's, you know, people you're late and you're overdue and you haven't missed your deadline. And so I, I think many times this book barely saw the light, but um, I'll just tell you one other little story about writing the book, which I think is just relevant for everybody who um, experiences learning this body of knowledge that is like, that really turns their world upside down. So when you come across this body of knowledge that seems to disprove everything you've ever believed in your life about food, like what food is good to eat and what food is unhealthy, you don't believe yourself. Like you think it's, it's not possible to believe this. I would routinely like lie down on the floor in our living room and say to my husband, I, I can't be right. I must be wrong. How can I disprove myself? Which I realize is a somewhat like flattering thing to say about myself that I'm at trying to disprove myself, which is what really all scientists should do. But I was so nervous about coming out with a body of work like this. It was so aggressive in a way. And, and there are many things that I, you know, in retrospect would have done differently mm. um, in order to have a different kind of reception. But, um, but all I can say it was a completely honest piece of work. I didn't, 
you know, I, I wasn't reading anything else at the time. I, I wasn't paying attention to the politics. I really was just trying to get to the bottom of a, of a set of problems. Wow. Well, there's a quote from Tom Clancy, I believe, where he says, the only difference between fiction and nonfiction is that fiction has to make sense. So between what you found writing the book and the actual process of writing the book sounds like it, it, it's so bizarre. That's the only way you know this story is true. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, to understand the story that you uncovered, we need to kind of unpack like how you found it. So can you tell us what it was like, you know, New York City, um, when you started to unravel this kind of mystery? you know, 20 years ago? Well, my introduction to this whole world, I think, um, which I've recounted in other, um, to other audiences is just that I had been assigned a story on trans fats by my editor at Gourmet Magazine for whom I was doing a series of invest, basically investigative, um, food, uh, stories. And, at the time, I knew nothing about trans fats. I didn't know what they were. It was the early 2000s. Nobody, um, I mean, it was not something that was co people commonly knew about. And I started researching trans fats and I discovered this whole world of people who literally um, told me stories that made me feel like I was investigating um, the mob, like people who would hang up on me if I asked them about dietary fat. And, and even if I asked the question, like, is it possible that we got it wrong on fat and, and that maybe the low fat diet has not been so healthy and, and, an, and a professor at a university would hang up on me. Or they would say, you know, if you're going to take that line, I, I refuse to talk to you. Or I would hear stories about from one of the early researchers on trans fats. Um, her name is Mary Enick. She's now passed. But she would she told me stories about how executives from the margarine industry would had visited her to try to shut down her research or how her paper they had. These executives had called the editor of a an academic journal to try to yank her papers on trans fats. I thought that this was a very, um, this was a, a very different world than I had imagined, but really that whole story, um, was going to be, it was about trans fats and I was going to write a book on trans fats. That was my book contract, my original book contract. And then the more that I dug into it about, um, I spoke to Gary Taubes and I read some really amazing journalism that had been done by a writer for the Atlantic, um, in like 1989 on these issues. And I realized there was just such a bigger, deeper, wider story about all fats that we'd seem to have gotten it wrong. Um, not only about trans fats, which we had overlooked as a health danger, but but our whole idea about good fat, bad fat, how much fat is healthy to eat, like all of that was wrong. Um, so, and that just sent me down the rabbit hole. And then I just, I got as, I mean, I really just spent years and years trying to untangle that. It wasn't until my final editor came to me and said, after she read the manuscript, she said, you know, you know, I really think your book is about saturated fats. <laughs> So that was how I learned that I had written a book on saturated fats and, and that's what came out, but wow. it really was not pre-planned in any way. Um, it, it was just something that happened to me really. Wow. More than I made it happen. Hmm. Were you ever like personally nervous that somebody would find you or like threaten you or anything like that? Um, you know, I, st I do still sometimes worry about that because I think that, um, well, I am still routinely attacked, um, by people. There are people who, 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 who 
spread lies and rumors about me. Um, just this week in an article in Men's Health, David Katz, who's been one of my most consistent um, critics who used to be at Yale, is no longer, runs a diet company and has been the head of a vegan advocacy group for years. You know, he has been accusing me. He's been saying that I'm a lobbyist for the beef industry and that I don't know anything about nutrition. And I mean, he's been doing this for years. And I do sometimes um, fear that that kind of hatred and those attacks will translate into something you know, something in the physical realm, but, um, you know, you can't live in fear. So you just have to, I mean, we all just have to keep soldering on. I think that the other way that we're, that this kind of, if you want to call it, there's sort of a movement or a group of people who are promoting alternative ideas about nutrition. I think that, you know, we have seen other areas where it's not physical, but I, people's videos are being yanked from YouTube. Um, people are being shadow banned on various forms of social media. People are being pulled off Wikipedia. I mean, there's, there's various ways that I think that, that we see that there's, um, some kind of effort to try to suppress these ideas that are coming out. In your opinion, the people that highly educated people, I should say that are suppressing all of that information is it, are they brainwashed or are they being paid? I mean, it's, it's nothing short of genocide. It seems like if we're purposely giving misinformation, that's keeping people sick and dying. Uh, well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, what are the forces that are trying to keep these ideas down? I mean, in my view, we're not, you know, I, I think there's, um, nobody is saying that, you know, that I'm, or what I suggest is right for everybody. Um, but I think there's a general belief and that I support in science that differing views should at least be given air and light and be, and be debated. Right. So, but there's clearly an attempt to try to shut down ideas. Um, and what are the sources of those, of those forces? Well, I mean, it's, it's really beyond the reach of my vision. Um, some of it I can see. I can see that there is um, a tremendous amount of investment in the current diet that is recommended by the government and by the American Heart Association. It's not only that they have their institutions invested in this diet, which is high grain and, and still pretty, you know, pretty much low fat and lots of vegetable oils and caps on saturated fat, I mean, none of which I think is healthy or is actually following the science. But these large institutions, they cannot be flip-flopping on their publics, right? And they, they cannot be seen to be wrong because everything depends on the public trust in these institutions. Um, so, you know, they, they are kind of immutable to change. It's like trying to move the Titanic. And they are at the same time also very much in bed with large multinational food corporations and pharmaceutical companies. So, and those interests are not only partner with the USDA, which issues our guidelines, but they also partner with the American Heart Association. And they're also involved in sponsoring all kinds of supposed nonprofits and groups that are, 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 um, that are promoting a, well, now I think mainly they're promoting a, a largely what they call a plant-based diet. We might recognize that as a vegetarian or vegan diet. And that is a very high carbohydrate diet that 
whatever you think of it, um, is really not because of its high carbohydrate content and its reliance on on vegetable oils or, or seed oils more accurately is really not a particularly healthy diet or a healthy diet at all for the majority of people on this planet. Um, so that's just some of the forces. I mean, other interests are all the university professors who have invested themselves in this particular hypothesis and have spent their entire years publishing on it. Many of them also receive uh, money from multinational corporations. Many of them uh, receive a lot of money from the drug and device industry. It's just this tremendous influence from um, moneyed interests. And now I think there's also a lot of money that comes in from the animal rights movement that doesn't want anybody eating animals. And there's also the influence that I think um, Bettina Fetke has uncovered of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which their primary mission is to try to have everybody adopt a vegan or vegetarian diet. I think the idea is that everybody has to adopt that diet in order for there to be a second coming. And just so you don't think that's completely crazy or coming out of, or that this is not a major influence, one, uh, a very senior level member of that uh, Seventh-day Adventist uh, university was one of the members of the elite group that um, was part of deciding the U.S. dietary guidelines this year. So they have reached high places and they're very influential. And so I think that's enough to like send shivers down the spine of anybody who is trying to promote, you know, alternative ideas. There's virtually no receptive audience for them because it threatens so many interests. Wow. You just, you can't even believe it. All these people you think have your best interests in mind. Like You just assume that they're going to do the right thing. It's crazy. There's so many... There's so many points in your book to like try to jump in. And I just want to highlight a few, a few things. And it's hard to decide, like, do we start, you know, 70 years ago? Do we start 110 years ago? Do we start 3 million years ago? Like, where do we jump in? And I, I guess I would like to jump in with President Eisenhower in 1955 having a heart attack. Can you kind of tell that story and how that evolved? Yes. Um, so this is sort of the origin story of how we all came to believe that saturated fat is bad for health. And that is that in the 1950s, the nation uh, was in a real panic over heart disease. It had been virtually non-existent in the early 1900s, even though it had been diagnosed and was in medical textbooks. So people knew, doctors knew what it was, but there were very few cases. It rose to be the number one killer in the U.S. by the 1950s. And in 1955, President Eisenhower has a heart attack and he's out of the Oval Office for 10 full days. Just imagine the attention focused on him. We just had President Trump in the hospital for a couple of days over COVID. I'm not sure if President Eisenhower was giving news conferences from the hospital, but <laughs> the, whole, the whole nation was completely focused on his health. And at the time, there were numerous theories about what might cause heart disease. No one was really sure. There was a theory um, that it could be vitamin deficiency, um, which I think is still plausible in part. Uh, there was a theory that it was caused by the rising tide of auto exhaust in the air, more cars on the road. There was a theory that it was a type A personality, people running around yelling at other people and 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 being too aggressive and then just falling down and dying um, of a heart attack. 
But I think as many people know, there was one theory that prevailed and that was the one proposed by Ansel Keys, um, who was a physiologist from the University of Minnesota. And he said that it was saturated fat and cholesterol, that those um, that, you know, that you find in dairy and meat um, and eggs, shellfish, high in cholesterol, organ meats, saturated fat and cholesterol would cause your blood cholesterol to go up and that would sort of clog your arteries or the, the image was of cholesterol gradually accumulating in your arteries to eventually just clog them off like hot oil down a cold drain pipe. And that would, um, cause a heart attack and you would, uh, die. So that was the diet heart hypothesis. And Ansel Keys, um, he was a very persuasive individual. I mean, he had previously, somehow managed to maneuver up the military chain of command to get K rations, you know, those meals that are, that are eaten by um, those who serve in the military. The K was named after keys. And I still don't understand how he managed to um, sort of pull the levers of power to enable that to happen. But he also befriended um, President Eisenhower's doctor, Paul Dudley White, and got took him on a trip around Europe and was able to persuade Eisenhower's doctor of this, his idea, such that Eisenhower was then put on a diet of margarine and dry Melba toast, um, not to mention the fact that he was something like a four-pack-a-day smoker. Um, but he, uh, and he suffered several more heart, heart attacks before ultimately dying. But Ansel Keys was also um, was able to persuade the American Heart Association to name him as one of just a few people, maybe six or seven, on their highly influential nutrition committee. And that committee had really said, we don't have enough data on to say what people should eat in order to avoid heart attacks. Um, but as soon as Ansel Keys was added to the committee, he sort of elbowed them around to his point of view. And in 1961, he was able to get them to issue the first ever official advice telling people to cut back on saturated fat and cholesterol as a measure, as the most important measure of prevention against heart disease. That's really where it all began. It was the American Heart Association responding to this intense public, the sense of urgency with Ansel Keys sort of driving it from behind, issuing this kind of premature, preliminary advice that then became enshrined throughout all of the public health system. It was adopted by the National Institutes of Health. It really just became the I, the, the dominant hypothesis, and it was accepted by everybody. Mm. Well, he had this amazing study that he did. I remember seeing there was a very clear plot line with all these different countries and the more saturated fat a country ate, the more they would die of heart disease. That's pretty clear. I mean, that's pretty good data, is it not? So the seven country study, well, for one thing, it was only men, even though it was extrapolated to be um, meaningful for both men and women. But there were just a number of problems with this study. It's one of the studies that I spent probably six months um, tracking down every last publication regarding this study, including when one that had been published in German in this out of the way little journal with all the dietary data that he obviously did not want to be widely known. One of the things that I found from that publication was that he had used different um, 
he'd use different ways of collecting the data so that none of his data were completely inconsistent. Like he sent some food samples back to Minnesota to be um, analyzed. Imagine that in, in, you know, the late 1950s, sending back uh, food from Greece, an island in Greece, back to Minnesota. And, and, and other he had also, for some of the men, he had used um, di- dietary recall data, which is a very bad way of collecting data because people don't remember what they eat. And even he acknowledged that and he basically threw out all his dietary surveys at the end. So, and ultimately, he only sampled the dietary data of some 500 men in a sample of, you know, nearly 13,000. So that is not a statistically representative sample. The correlation that he found between saturated fat and uh, heart disease didn't hold up inside countries. So that the people on the island of Corfu in Greece ate less saturated fat than the islanders on Crete, yet on Corfu, they were better in terms of eating less saturated fat, but they died at higher rates from heart disease. Well, how could that possibly prove his theory? And so what he did is he he tended to merge all the data in the countries and sort of ignore these problems that he found inside countries. He had the same problem in Finland where the northern Finnish loggers who ate a lot more saturated fat were in fact found to be healthier than those in another part of Finland where they didn't eat as much saturated fat. So his data was not consistent and he 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 was able to get the results that he did by ignoring these inconsistencies. But I think ultimately the critique that is made of the seven countries study, regardless of what he found, is that it's an association. It's not causation. You know, there's a huge difference between data that one is associated with something else. I mean, there's so many associations you can find. You can find an association between autism and the consumption of organic food, a perfect association between those two things. You can find a perfect association between consumption of margarine and the divorce rate in Maine. But are those things, is one of those things causing the other thing? That is where you need a, you know, a randomized controlled clinical trial. That is the gold standard of science. Um, And so the seven country study was ultimately hobbled by the fact that it was just an association. And by the way, when I examined his data. And later on, I found that the stronger association was actually not between saturated fats and heart disease um, mortality or, or heart attacks. It was actually sugar or sugar, sugary desserts, I think was the category. That was more strongly associated with poor outcomes from heart disease. And this was something that they just ignored. And I talked to one of his um, co-authors who I think is still alive, Dr. Kromhout in the Netherlands. And I said, well, why did you not talk about sugar? And his response to me was, well, Ansel Keys was just so very sure that the culprit was saturated fat that, you know, we did talk about sugar, but he, he put that aside. So we did this thing a few weeks ago. We had Scott Mislinski on. He's the host of the Carnivore Cast podcast. He's been a great friend and a mentor for me for the last few years. And we asked him a question, two questions, actually. We asked him if he woke up in the mornings, and we asked him if the sun rose. And he said yes to both. And I pointed out to him, dude, you are making the sunrise. That's amazing. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Pretty good example of epidemiology, correct? Yeah, correlation, but not causation. Not causation. 
I think that it's a, a credit to nutrition scientists in the early 1960s that they recognized that the seven country study, although it was the biggest study that had been done and was very powerful in persuading people, they understood that there had been no randomized controlled clinical trials and that there needed to be in order to provide the kind of proof that scientists expect in order to provide population-wide recommendations. So many governments around the world, in Finland and Sweden and Australia, and in the U.S. uh, by the National Institutes of Health, they undertook large controlled, randomized controlled clinical trials to try to basically prove that the heart, the diet heart hypothesis was correct. And the strange thing was that they could not prove it to be true. And this was an absolutely bedeviling fact that as these trials unfolded over the course of the 1960s and 1970s, and even the 1980s, their data did not sort of comply with what they had believed to be true. And there's, um, it's really fascinating what happened to these trials because it was the diet hard hypothesis had become so deeply embedded in all in the world of public health that it was almost inconceivable that the data would not comply. So in some cases, it just wasn't published. Um, I think one really excellent example of this is the entire diet portion of the largest ever epidemiological study done by the U.S. government called the Framingham study. The diet portion of that revealed that there was no correlation between saturated fat and heart disease. And that of the 28 volumes that were published on the Framingham study, that volume remains to this day unpublished in a basement in NIH. There's also the example of the Minnesota Coronary Survey, which took place in five mental hospitals and other inpatient institutions. So people were fairly well controlled in that they had all their meals served to them. So there wasn't this element of unknowing about what people were eating, which is what confounds so many diet trials. And it was on over 9,000 men and women, and it took place for four and a half years. Um, And when the results came out, the lead principal investigators, which originally had included Ansel Keys, but he took his name off the paper, um, but it included somebody named Ivan France and they did not publish their results for 17 years. And remember, this is a National Institutes of Health funded study. And finally, they published their results in an out of the way journal that they knew nutrition scientists didn't read called ATVB is its its uh, short name. And um, when asked much later, well, why did you not publish your results? Ivan France said, well, there was really nothing wrong with the study, but we were just so disappointed in the way it turned out. Wow. So this was sort of a self-censorship that happened. And um, much later, uh, like I think in 2015 or 16, researchers went back and, and recovered from Ivan France's basement the original magnetic tapes from his, of data from his trial and discovered that there was yet another un- unpublished uh, fact or finding that emerged from his study, which is that the more that the men and women were successfully able to lower their cholesterol, the more likely they were to die of heart disease. Wow. So um, that was published by Ramsden in the BMJ. So I think that... Um, There was a tremendous amount of censorship that went on. There's a very interesting study that I came across recently that shows that would actually did a kind of what's called a citation analysis to show how review papers, whether or not they included what we would say maybe are 
negative results or results that didn't support the diet heart hypothesis. And the, it showed, this paper shows that the vast majority of review papers simply ignored these trial results. They didn't cite them. They only cited the positive findings. And so these, what were now called sort of core trials, the trials that were tested all together on 67,000 people, at least all over the world, these core trials just disappeared. They became like lost science, like orphaned papers where they just disappeared from the scientific literature. And it really was not until Gary Taubes came along and unearthed them and published some of them in his um, Good Calories, Bad Calories. And then my book really focused much more on the issue of saturated fats and again, brought these trials to light um, that people started to, scientists around the world really started paying attention to them. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about you know, what the last decade of science has shown us now on saturated fats. Yeah, sure. Uh, so one of your fans, after he read the book, he actually tweeted out and said that you blew his mind, Malcolm Gladwell, pretty big name. <laughs> one, He hosts yeah. one of my favorite podcasts, and he, in season two, episode 10, did an episode called The Basement Tapes, where he talks all about finding all of those magnetic tapes. And it's such a crazy story. The, the episode right before it is called how McDonald's broke my heart and it talks about how in 1990 they switched their saturated fat that they would cook their amazing French fries in to vegetable oil and made their French fries taste disgusting. And so it's, it's also really interesting what happens when you do remove the saturated fat, what you end up with that could be way worse. Yes. I mean, I devote a lot of um, space in my book to that particular subject. And I think it's one that has really come to light in the last, well, with my book and also with the work of Dr. Kate Shanahan, really that, you know, when you, when we were told to replace saturated fats with um, polyunsaturated seed oils, like soybean, um, originally it was cottonseed, oil and Crisco and, and, and corn oil. And now it's mostly soybean oil, but these oils, um, they're really industrial products. They come out of a factory. They're made with hard metal, uh, chemical reactants there. They go through a long process of after you squeeze the oil out of the seed, um, you have to deodorize it and winterize it and stabilize it and do all these, these things to make it, edible um, and not too dangerous. But in fact, they do remain quite dangerous, these oils. They, they oxidize extremely easily if they're used in, in cooking and frying, as they are in nearly, I think, 100% of restaurants across the United States. They're even more dangerous um, because that oxidation project, as anybody from a high school chemistry lab knows, um, you know, heat speeds up the chemical reaction. So, they oxidize even more quickly and that causes the degradation of these oils into hundreds of degraded triglycerides and all kinds of other oxidation products. So, and those enter the food in which they're cooked or fried. They then in turn enter the human body that eats that food. They cross the blood brain barrier and there, these contain among them are literal, um, you know, toxins, known toxins, um, such as aldehydes, which is um, one of the scarier things that um, I found in my research. I mean, Malcolm's episode was really based on my book. He came to interview me and I wish he had used some of my tape because he used many of my stories and my information, but he came with like a sticky note on nearly every page of my book and said, you know, 
it's really, I mean, he based his episodes, which he did his own interesting new reporting, but he really did, I think, get a start in my book. And, um, you know, he tells the story of the aldehydes. These, these inflammatory molecules, I mean, you know, I think everybody's heard of antioxidants. Why do we take antioxidants? Because inflammation is a really bad thing for the body. And it causes, um, you know, it causes really, I mean, the, the, the inflammatory chemicals that are made out of uh, that from heated oils um, are known to cause cancer, heart disease. Um, and I think there's emerging evidence that it's also contributes significantly to obesity because of the way that it affects each and every cell in the body and, and affects the mitochondria, which is where you get your energy from. Mm. So vegetable oils are a scary thing. That is terrifying. I want to say that the U.S. government recommends that each and every human being in America get 37 grams of vegetable oils. So soybean, I think they specifically say soybean oil every day. So... That is terrifying. <laughs> There's a long way to go on education in that area. Wow. One of my favorite TV shows I'd like to just kind of have on the background every now and again is the show called How It's Made. And it, you know, it could be basketballs or it could be a bicycle or, you know, household objects, pencils, whatever. And there is an episode of How It's Made canola oil. And I don't know how they let those people in the factory with cameras and and they're like proud of it and they're showing you how to make vegetable oil and it is disgusting it's insane when you when you say heavy metals and solvents and winterizing and bleaching like that that's legit and it it's disgusting and then you take that fragile oil and heat it up over and over again that's awful <laughs> you know i i toured a plant owned by bungie that where they were making hydrogenated vegetable oils because hydrogenation is the process that produces trans fats. And they showed me, you know, I saw what an undeodorized oil looks like or an unwinterized oil looks like. I mean, it just looks like gray green slime. It's disgusting. And then they had, you know, the buckets with the metal chelates. And, um, and after that, the man who showed me around, wrote me a series of emails basically begging me not to use his name in the story because he was going to get fired for having given me access to their, to their plant. Wow. And I think I didn't use his name out of sympathy for him because, um, he really didn't know what he was getting himself into, but it was a very rare look inside of one of these plants. And, you know, it was right on the railway tracks and delivering just massive amounts of these oils. I mean, oils were really not in the human food supply at almost at all in any um, amount in the early 1900s, they had been used, cottonseed oil had been used as a lubricant for the industrial revolution. Um, and because the oil was a byproduct of the cotton crop and they were running out of whale oil because they had hunted out all the whales. Um, so they started using cottonseed oil and that helped with the industrial revolution. And it wasn't until Procter and Gamble were able to um, whiten that oil and make it hard and turn it into Crisco. And they realized, oh, this looks a lot like lard. Let's get, let's, let's sell this to consumers as a replacement lard. And that was um, in the 19 teens or maybe 1911. And anyway, that was the introduction of vegetable oils into the American diet via Crisco. And, um, with such success that they are now about 8% of all the calories that we consume. I mean, since 1970, we have increased our consumption of seed oils by almost 90%. So 
It really is. I think the biggest increase in any food item in the human diet. And I think that, you know, when we go looking for what caused heart disease, why is obesity such a scourge? I mean, especially given that we have to acknowledge that sugar consumption since 1999 has gone down. Consumption of refined carbohydrates has actually gone down. Um, And there may be some delayed effects of having those or epigenetic effects of having those in the diet, but seed oils continues to rise. So it's, it's really, it's really worth getting those oils out of, out of your diet. And they're, they're really the backbone of all processed foods. You know, if you look at any cookie cracker chip, anything in a package, it has some kind of seed oil in it, um, or is very likely to have some kind of seed oil in it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I think even like things like salad dressings, things you would think would be healthy are, are totally full of them. It's crazy. There's just, yeah. And mayonnaise, yeah. you know, off the, off the shelf mayonnaise is full of seed oil. Even if it says this oil, even if the mayonnaise says it's made with olive oil, the first ingredient is usually soybean oil. Wow. I've discovered, you know, because you know, it's, it's time consuming to make your own mayonnaise, but you just, there's just nothing you can buy off the shelf that isn't made with soybean oil. Wow. That's so gross. There, we, we haven't even like scratched the surface of your book. So for the listener, go out, buy this book, The Big Fat Surprise. You will learn about Crisco, the American Heart Association, how they got paid, how they, how they bought them out. Like there's so many insane stories, Oreo reformulations and the, the corporations and the Mediterranean diet. Like it's just endlessly fascinating. And so we really encourage our listeners to go out and buy it because it is a wonderful, wonderful book that takes so many crazy twists and turns. I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing now with the Nutrition Coalition. And in one one phrase, in one line, I want you to tell me what is the goal of the Nutrition Coalition? The Nutrition Coalition was founded simply to try to ensure that our nutrition guidelines in the United States, the U.S. Dietary Guidelines for America, is based on rigorous scientific evidence. Okay. That's it. Okay. It should not be... I want that to sink in to the listener. Think, think about what she just said. We want nutrition to be based on science. Is there any other field of science like space flight or I don't know, manufacturing, anything that's not based on science already? Like, why does that have to be a thing? That's so crazy. You know, it was interesting. Dr. Fauci recently, when people were debating over one of the, um, cholesterolinine. I'm going to mispronounce that. But he came out and he said, we cannot approve something that has not been through a clinical trial. That's just our bottom line. And I thought, oh, how refreshing. Because in nutrition policy, there is virtually nothing that is advised to the American public that is based on clinical trials or is based on the majority of clinical trial evidence. I mean, all the advice that we're getting, eat more fruits and vegetables, no clinical trials to show that those are more, um, those provide better health if you eat more of them. There's virtually none. Six portions of grains per day. There's no clinical trial evidence to show that that will make you healthier. I was just going to say, we've been guinea pigs in our own experiment for so many years now. How many more years of people getting sicker and less healthy and dying are we going to need in order to know we're not going down the right path? Well, this is where it's, there's such a disconnect because although you would think somebody might look at the trajectory of obesity and diabetes and, and, you know, heart disease, still a number one killer and cancer in America. And you'd think, 
if this were any other field, they would look at their basic policy and say, hey, maybe we got something wrong here. Maybe there's maybe there's some kind of need to question. And, you know, we also live in a world now where there is alternative science on um, on diets that don't look anything like the dietary guidelines, but have been able to reverse diabetes or fatty liver disease. But instead, you know, if this were the airline industry, for instance, and all their planes were crashing, you would somebody would say we need to land all the planes. Um, and until we figure this problem out, we can't keep on recommending or, or we can't keep on flying those planes if people are dying from it. I think there's like six million deaths a year from diet related chronic diseases. That's wow. a lot. That's a lot. So. But in my conversations that I've had with people in Washington and policymakers, there is an almost zero openness to considering other ideas. I've, I've met with all kinds of policymakers and the, their, their minds are completely set on the idea that Americans fail to follow the guidelines. And if they were only more adherent, they would be more healthy, even though there's virtually no evidence to show that that's true. I mean, First of all, Americans have followed the guidelines. We have over the since 1970, we've decreased our consumption of meat by 28 percent. Butter is down by 19 percent. Animal fats are down by 19 percent. We've increased fruits and vegetables by like 25 to 35 percent. We've increased our consumption of grain, vegetable oils, everything that we've been told to increase. We've increased everything we've been told to decrease. We've decreased. There's not a single category where Americans have not complied we have increased our carbohydrates by 25 or 30%. So as a percentage of calories. So the idea that we're not following the guidelines cannot be, is not empirically supported by the facts. And there have been clinical trials on the guidelines. There have been trials where they've actually given people a, you know, the dietary guidelines themselves and said, follow this. There have been large trial. The largest trial had 49,000 women that followed this diet for eight years and they could not show that it could prevent any kind of disease of any kind. There was actually an amazing clinical trial where they compared the dietary guidelines to a, what they called a junk food diet. <laughs> and the dietary guidelines barely performed any better. I think only on one tiny measure did it perform better than the junk food diet. So I think it's just an entrenched system. And you have to understand the USDA works very closely and has partnerships or alliances with many of the large multinational food corporations. So it's just very hard to move them in their thinking. Mm. I think it was naive on my part to try to change such a mammoth policy that's been around since 1980 and think that people would respond to the science when there's so many other interests at hand. It, it really, it has been a huge disappointment to me that more people were not willing to even, even consider these ideas. Mm. I think a lot of people would also consider like, okay, the government's saying whatever they want to say. I went out and bought Nina's book, so I have a better understanding of this. So I don't really care about the guidelines. They can say whatever they want. But I think it's important to point out, like, what what would a, a typical meal that follows the guideline look like for somebody who is your child or in the military or in a nursing home? Like, what what, what kinds of things can they pass off as, like, grains and vegetables? 
Well, I'll tell you the the you know every state translates when they give school meals for children or you know feeding programs for the elderly or whatever they they serve donuts for breakfast in some schools because that is within the guidelines. Ten percent of your calories can be from sugar. You're supposed to get three servings of refined grains every day. You can have donuts for breakfast and then you can have star chips or whatever for lunch and. Um, in the women, the program that's designed for women with infant children, they, um, if you look at the formularies for some states, they have, um, they serve a lot of fruit juice, a lot of sugary refined grain cereals, like, you know, like cherry Twix, things like that. And they have, um, no meat at all and very few eggs and some low fat dairy. It's really, it's really shocking to think like this is the start that we're giving, giving, you know, that we're giving to like hardly a head start for children in America. And for the elderly, it's the same thing, which is, you know, meals that are based on grains, you can't get any butter, you must have margarine if there's any kind of spread on, you know, for your bread, um, jello. And, you know, there's, it's just starchy, sugary meals that are very high in carbohydrates. So in general, the dietary guidelines advises between 51 and 54% of your calories as carbohydrates. And again, all seed oils, no natural fats in that diet or almost no, I'm sorry, there's a 10% cap on saturated fats. So, but, you know, I'm not sure those could come from, from various sources. So it really is, it really is not a good diet for Um, most people. I want to just say one other thing that I think is shocking when I discovered this, which is that the dietary guidelines are only for prevention of disease. So you have to just take that in. What that means is it's only for healthy people who have not been diagnosed with a diet-related disease. That means that the 60% of Americans who've been diagnosed with obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, blah, 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 whatever, fatty liver disease, the dietary guidelines have not looked at the science on those people, how to help those people. And it, it does not have any information for those people. And yet the guidelines are applied to all Americans. So they go to, out to all children, regardless of whether they're, they have diabetes or they're obese. Um, and and they, they're, they're based, I mean, the dietary guidelines, to the extent that they could help anybody or be appropriate for anybody, they really are only designed for people who are healthy. Wow. And, and is almost certainly guaranteed to make those people be unhealthy. <laughs> it, you, you can't make this stuff up. It's that Tom Clancy quote. Like, you can't make this up. <laughs> it must be true. I think that it's because it's such a giant scandal, really, that it's almost impossible to talk about in the wow. sense that so many institutions are involved. So many high-level university pre- professors are involved. It's like almost impossible to talk about something that is so wrong at such a major scale. I used to be more optimistic, but when I see, you know, how powerfully industry is still trying to shut down any alternative ideas, I do think it's, it's going to take many years to change this. Or I think that it's going to happen from word of mouth shows like yours, people talking from one to the next, they see their neighbor losing a hundred pounds. They see their coworkers getting healthy. And that is how change is going to happen. But what is tragic about it is that the people who have to rely on government food, the kids in school breakfasts and school lunches and the Native Americans living on you know, reservations where they get boxes of food from the government or, you know, all those pe- people in hospitals, all those people have no choice. 
they have to eat the food that is provided them and they just don't have a choice. Yeah. It's such a crazy story. I, I don't think I've ever heard you sound like as disappointed about the guidelines, but it must be extremely discouraging to, to do what you do to fight this fight and feel like it's just, it's not going anywhere. I need to add just a moment, uh, like a little glimmer of hope in this, which is that we have only just started this, let's call it a movement. We have greatly raised awareness. There are that we have brought this issue to Washington. We have been published in, you know, I have been published or, or the nutrition coalition has been, our views have been published in the New York times, the wall street journal, I mean, major publications, you know, we're on the map now and thousands and thousands of letters have been sent to all sorts of public officials. So I don't think it's impossible. I just think that it is the fight of a generation and we're just at the beginning of that. Mm. Well, we will be right there with you, um, sharing your work and, and fighting as much as we can as well. We so much appreciate you and everything that you've done and coming on with us and, and giving your time. What is one simple thing that you would recommend for our listeners that they could drop into their lives immediately and see a good benefit? I think getting seed oils out of your kitchen <laughs> would be a great idea. And if you need an oil, use olive oil. And if you need to understand why olive oil is better than other oils, then I encourage you to read my book. And I'll just tell you, give you a small hint. It's because it's monounsaturated instead of polyunsaturated. I think that's probably the best thing people can do other than I'm, sh I'm sure your audience knows, which is to reduce, you know, highly processed foods and in particular those with that are high in carbohydrates. Absolutely. We hope they do. <laughs> we just had Amy Berger on and she told us all about how to end your carbohydrate confusion. So hopefully our audience knows that by now. Where can people find you and your work? So I'm at ninateichels.com and maybe you can put that in the show notes since probably nobody knows how to spell my name. Um, and I'm on Twitter as long as they allow me at a uh, big fat surprise. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and that's mostly where I am. I'm on Facebook, but not too active. And, um, and the nutrition coalition is, can be found at nutritioncoalition.us. There's a lot of really great science there. And if you want to understand more about how our nutrition policy is made or not well made, that is the place to go. Awesome. We will absolutely link to all of that in the show notes. We can't thank you enough for your work. Like we said, we're so grateful for you and everything that you've done and, and for fighting and leading the way. So thank you very much for everything you've done. And thank you for appearing on our show. Thank you so much for having me, Casey and Bethany. It's truly a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. 